We're going to read from the first chapter of Jonah today, but before we do that, I found something that I put on the back page, and I wonder if you would read this with me. I don't want to put words in your mouth. You don't have to. You don't want to. But I think that those of us who are regularly a part of North River want this to be a healthy church, right? So this is something that was written by Tom Rayner, who's a church consultant for the Southern Baptist Convention. He's, he basically advises a lot of church planters. And I read this this week, and I adapted it a little bit, but I wonder if you would dare to read this with me. It's called Why I Attend Church. I attend church to serve others. I attend church to encourage others. I attend church to state my priorities. I attend church to participate in worship. I attend church even if it doesn't meet all my needs. I attend church with frequency, not on occasion. I attend church to set an example for my family. I attend church because the Bible tells me to do so. I attend church because I love my church. I love my church because I love Jesus. I love my pastors. I love the members of my church. I love the community my church serves. If I love someone, I will be there for them. I truly love my church. What do you think? I, I was thinking that might be the kind of statement that we read on the days we do communion. I'm thinking through who are we as a church? Who are we becoming? And how do we reinforce that value? Because it swims against the tide of where our culture seems to be shifting, where church increasingly becomes irrelevant. It gives us an opportunity to make a statement about what we believe and who we are becoming together. All right, we're going to read this morning from Jonah chapter 1. We're finishing off this series that we've been calling Affirmative, saying yes to God. And uh, the last piece of this series is, well, what happens when we say no to God? And so I'd like to use the story of Jonah in the Old Testament for that purpose. Jonah 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port after paying for the fare. He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And then they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. 
Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Let's pray for a minute. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we have here every time we gather to open your word to either rejoice in something we've already known or to learn something new about scriptures that seem so familiar. Or for some even to explore these ancient texts for the very first time. My prayer is that you would allow us to take the lessons from here and that you would give us some kind of nugget, some kind of principle that guides us for what we will face and deal with over the next seven days as we go out into our worlds. We pray for your leading. We pray for your guiding. And we pray, as we've been doing for the last month, that you will continue to condition our hearts to sense when you are directing us, when you are whispering to us, or when you're hitting us over the head with a two-by-four, and to say yes to your call. Now, Lord, we ask that you would meet us in all the ways that have nothing to do with this message today. You know the different burdens and challenges and grief that we carry. You know the decisions that some folks have to make as they go back to work or if there's some other uh, great uh, next move in their lives. We pray for wisdom. We pray that you will give us the ability to discern truth around us and the courage to act on the principles that we know come from you. Thank you for every person in this room. Thank you for the friendships that are growing here. Thank you for what you are doing in the midst of our faith community. We ask that you will bless the communities around us, all the towns that we represent here on the South Shore that you'll make us a blessing to many others. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night, Sue and I and Todd and Jamie Shimshack had dinner with uh, a family who were made up of some pretty serious runners. The dad had, read se had run several marathons, and his daughter and son-in-law are hoping to run the Boston Marathon together in 2020. Not for charity, mind you, but you know, real qualifying times where you get an actual number and an actual ticket. Years ago, I spent a lot of time around runners by being part of my junior high, high school, and college track teams. I know I don't look like it today, but there was a time when, when I was a pretty active runner. And that experience allowed me to form one very simple observation. Not all runners are the same. For instance, some runners can explode out of the blocks in a short sprint. I always liked that. I, I ran the, the 200 meters in high school and in college and, and, and did the high jump. And there were a group of us who were sprinters on our college track team. We made up these t-shirts, and it had the, uh, the face of this one guy who was an all-American 5,000-meter and 10,000-meter runner who could just go and go for days. And it had a, one of those circles with a slash through it, and we, we named ourselves the Mile a Month Club. And it was you know, a total joke, but it was to bust all those runners who would just go and go and go. And then there are those people who can just run. It seems like they, 
They don't ever need to breathe. They just keep going five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, and they've always amazed me. I've, I've never been one of them. I will never be one of them. I was just built the wrong way. Once in a while, a runner will dedicate himself or herself to a seemingly brutal discipline of, of training that lifts that person far beyond all the competition around them. The most courageous runner that I ever saw in my life was a guy that I met when I, when I was in college who was blind. And he happened to room in a dorm with a bunch of the guys who were on the cross-country team. And he hung out with them, so it became natural that he wanted to, to jog with them. And so uh, they started a, a practice where they would go out for a run on, on the roads with him, and somebody would wear a bright white shirt and would, would run right in front of him. The only vision that he had, he could make out the difference between white and dark, and that was it. And that project of running with his friends led him to come out for the spring track team, and he ran the 5,000 meters. So what's 5,000 meters? 3.1, isn't it? 3.1 miles. And uh, somebody would be stationed to run with him at exactly the same pace, just in front of him. He could make out the cement barrier that marked the inside of the track, and he could see that white shirt and he ran with this really awkward pace. Imagine if you've been blind your whole life and you're not sure where your next step is going. It was this really choppy, awkward step. And people in the crowds who would stand at these track meets, they would watch this guy running and they'd think, this guy's really awkward. What's he doing out there? This guy's not a college runner. What, what's happening here? And then the whispers would go through the crowd and they'd start to figure out. that This guy was actually unbelievably courageous because not being able to see all the normal things that we would see, only being able to see that white shirt in front of him, he would actually run a college 5,000 meter race. And by the time they would get to the, the final lap, even though he was way behind everybody else, the people in the stands would start to cheer for him and they would, they would call like crazy. The last time that I saw him run was at a, a league championship meet my, my sophomore year in college, last year that I ran. And this guy came up and he'd improved so much that he started passing people on the last lap. He realized that he was a senior. He was never going to have the luxury of doing this again. He'd probably never be in a place again where somebody would sacrifice their own race in order to run at his pace just so that he could see that white shirt. And as he got into that last lap, he just took off like a crazy man. And he started passing people all the way around the back corner and then up that last straightaway. And the fans were going crazy, even though he was nowhere near scoring for that particular race. Still stands out in my mind almost 40 years later. I can see that guy pouring himself out into that. Here's where I bring that to your attention this morning. This morning we're going to look at a different kind of runner. One who is found in the Old Testament book of Jonah, this ancient story of Jonah. Jonah not only said no to God, but we find him in the first chapter of this book that takes his name, running away from God. That's really the picture that we're given. So in this affirmative series, we've been looking at people who've said yes to God. We've learned from Esther and Barnabas and Ananias who blessed Saul of Tarsus and then from Peter, and today we're going to close out this series by analyzing what is at stake with this whole concept, and so our topic is when we say no to God. Here's the main idea that I'm getting across. If you want to tune out now, just latch in on, lock in on this one sentence. Saying no to God comes at a high price, the loss of peace, purpose, and direction. 
Saying no to God always comes at a high price. Let me walk through, you, through a handful of lessons that we can pull out of this. The question that's running through this is, what does saying no to God cost us? And we can discern that by tracking through this uh, story of the account of Jonah's life. First, it leads to running to God. Saying no to God leads to running away. So we find in verse 3 and in verse 10 these thoughts. But, jo- but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then verse 10 picks it up and says, This terrified them, the sailors, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So there is no question at this point that Jonah was running away from God. Verse 3 tells us that he was running away from the Lord. He's headed toward this far-off port. The same verse tells us that he was fleeing from the Lord. And then we get a third uh, reference in verse 10 that tells us that he'd already told the sailors that he was running from God. So the question behind that is, why was Jonah running from the Lord? The simple background is that Jonah was a prophet who served in Israel during the years of about 792 to 753 B.C., His primary ministry target involved the northern kingdom of Israel. This is the days after Solomon's reign when Israel became split in two. The northern kingdom was known as Samaria after its capital city. The southern kingdom was known as Israel with Jerusalem as its its capital city, sometimes called just Judah. And the assignment that he received was to preach A call of repentance, meaning to change your mind in a way that causes you to change your direction, to the city of Nineveh. That might not mean much to most people, but Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq. It's the city that we've heard on the news for the past several years known as Mosul. That's where Nineveh was. God's warning through Jonah was motivated by God's compassion for this pagan nation that was worshiping all kinds of different idols and foreign gods. And Jonah did not want to deliver this message because of his anger and his bias against the people of Assyria in which Nineveh was the capital city. Jonah, in effect, was a self-appointed justice warrior who wanted to bring down God's judgment on the people of Nineveh. We read about this in chapter 4, verse 1 says, but Jonah to Jonah this seemed very wrong that God had shown compassion and he became angry I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity he's in effect telling God this is why I ran away this is why I didn't want to take this stupid assignment that you gave me God because I knew you would show compassion to people I don't want you to show compassion to one heck of a prophet isn't he The official policy of the Assyrians in that time when they would conquer a group of people was that they would not take any prisoners alive. Barnhouse in his commentary writes that they would hold down their victims and they would tear their tongues out and then they would make pyramids from the skulls of the people they had killed and they would set them outside the city gates of any city that they conquered. This is why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knew that's the kind of people they were. Their cruelty was known throughout the world, and Jonah hated them for it. But here's the flip side of that reality. God's love and compassion is so radical 
that he wanted even that city in that nation to have an extra chance to hear the words of grace and turn around. That's the amazing love of our God, that the same God who was capable of inflicting justice, and he would more than 100 years later, about 150 years later, wanted them to have an extra chance. Jonah was not all that unusual. I find that today there are many people that I meet that are running from God. Every once in a while it's me and there's a dope slap that comes and somebody is able to point that out that I'm fighting against what God seems to be doing in that moment. Some people are running from God and don't realize what they're doing. Some are running from God and they just won't admit it. They know it but they won't say the words. Some who are running from God actually hide in their religion. They just want to judge everybody else except for themselves. And this is where Jonah fits in. He wants God to bring down judgment on this other group, but he doesn't want God to deal with his own heart. And running from God leads some to create their own religions and even to create their own God, a God who fits you know, their understanding, who never disagrees with them. Tim Keller has a, has a great statement. He says, if, if you never find that God disagrees with you, you're worshiping yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so here's that, that main thought. You know, saying no to God comes at a high price. And we're going to explore the rest of that price. Here's the second observation. It leads to trouble for others. Saying no to God leads to trouble in other people's lives. So that's what we find here with Jonah, verses 7 and 8, chapter 1. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Where's your country? From what people are you? We tend to give people who are running from God their space. We think, I'll just leave him alone. He's not hurting anybody. I'll leave her alone. She'll come to her senses at, somewhere, at some point down the road. Jonah had rejected an Arab adventure, choosing instead a Mediterranean cruise. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, when you look at the geography here, where he's going from and where he's heading to, he's heading south on the Mediterranean Sea. I would rather be in the Mediterranean Sea rather than in the desert just about any time in my life. So he seems like a pretty logical guy in a lot of ways. We quickly get the picture that Jonah had brought trouble on the people around him. A storm breaks out and the sailors, whether they are just superstitious or whether they have an inkling, we're not told. The sailors believe that someone was responsible. So they cast lots and they actually bring the passengers on this boat, people who paid for their fare, like Jonah, into that whole process And Jonah draws the short stick. And so they ask him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? In effect, they're saying, are you the one? And Jonah tells them that he's running from the Lord. Okay, so what kind of trouble were they in? These were sailors in the Mediterranean Sea who were experts at sailing, but they were finding a raging storm all around them. The storm was so bad that they'd thrown off all the cargo to lighten the ship. This is bad. They're in trouble. When the sailors are afraid, and they're bringing the sailors, they're bringing the passengers, rather, into their solution 
finding process and they're casting all the cargo over so this is going to be a huge financial loss you get the sense that they're terrified and now the waves were so high that they're concerned for their lives have you ever noticed that the chaos that people who are running away from God seem to bring on themselves and very often seem to bring on everyone around them most people who run from God make rather bad decisions in that process. We, we hide it in a number of ways. Some of us hide it in our addictions because the addiction drowns out the voice of God or it numbs the pain and the shame that accompanies our running. If you're caught in that kind of trap today, I just want to say it's time to stop running from God and it's time to start running to God. That you're actually running away from the solution it's a natural instinct, but it's the wrong direction. And you'll find that his arms are open wide. Here's the third discovery. It not only leads to running from God, it not only leads to trouble for other people, it leads to a loss of peace in the midst of your life. So verse 11 picks up this theme. It says, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, Who should we, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us. I wonder, where did that question come from? How did they have this sense that if they dealt with Jonah in some way that the sea was going to instantly change? Of course it does. Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So it may take a moment to see this or for this to sink in, but I think Jonah was exhausted from running away. Here's a prophet who's used to hearing the word of the Lord and acting on it and delivering that to other people. And he knows he's gotten a direct message from God with an assignment, a mission, if you will. And he runs in the opposite direction. If you've ever spent any time trying to ignore God once you have faith in the Lord or run away from God, you will discover that it takes a whole lot of energy to do that. And it's exhausting. Whereas somebody who doesn't know God, doesn't care about God at all, can do that and it's easy as can be. But for you it's exhausting because you know it's, there's a relational component, there's a spiritual component, uh, there's a faith component that you're walking away from. And so they find Jonah in the bottom of the boat, below decks, fast asleep in the midst of this raging storm that's so bad that the sailors are frightened. The captain has to come down and wake him up. It makes you wonder, what kind of sleep was that? I think he was exhausted from running away. When he finally got on this Mediterranean cruise, he's thinking, I made it, I can escape, nobody knows me here, nobody's gonna find me here. And while he's asleep, the storm starts to rage. So first the captain comes to this realization. How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God, he says. Notice that small print because the captain didn't know which God that uh, Jonah would call upon. So he's, he's thinking in the, in the nature of all the other gods that all the other people of those nations worship. He was letting Jonah know there's a sense of urgency and that his crew was gripped with fear. Then we see the description of the turbulent seas. It's getting rougher and rougher. I don't know if you happen to see any of the videos from last weekend. There was a Viking cruise. 
that got stuck out there where there wasn't enough oil to keep the engines going and the engines stopped right in the middle of the sea. So as the, the crews, uh, the, the captain's trying to drive away from the storm, all of a sudden this ship is being battered in the storm. So think of all these people thinking they're going on a luxury cruise and they have to have helicopters come in to lift them off of the cruise. That's got to be harrowing too. You're going up in a bosun's chair up into the helicopter and uh, not a great advertising week for Viking cruises. <laughs> and then a rogue wave blasts over this ship as the passengers are all terrified. I became aware of it when there was a YouTube thing that, that went around on, on Facebook and people who were actually on the ship were taking videos of all the stuff that was crashing from side to side on board that ship. All right, did I just ruin anybody's vacation? I hope not. <laughs> Then we, third, we, we, we read of this conversation between the sailors and Jonah. And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will be calm. The amazing thing, that's exactly what happened. Running away from God had made Jonah miserable. Have you ever wondered what Jonah was thinking in the midst of this episode? I wonder if he was trying to end it all. I wonder if this was escapism. He was saying, throw me overboard and, and maybe I can die. That's how bad I feel right now as I'm running from God. And that wasn't what God wanted at all. There's no way for us to know what was, well, for, for him to know what was about to unfold. He had no idea that there would be this specially designed fish. We have to take that by faith. It's never been recreated. There have been things that were close there was one just recently, I don't know if you saw the video that hit all the CNN news uh, stuff, there was a, a guy in a wetsuit that was out tracking with the sharks off of Australia, I think it was, or New Zealand a few weeks ago, and temporarily he got swallowed in the mouth of this massive whale, and all of his friends caught it, on, you know, they had their, their phones out, and it was about two seconds, the thing all of a sudden realizes he got this guy with a rubber suit on and spits him out. And I thought, whoa, uh, this guy lived to tell it. It's on film. They're putting it on CNN. Maybe Jonah's not that hard to believe after all. We're a, couple, we're a step away from that. Somehow God was using all this to get Jonah's attention and protecting him at the same time. That's an interesting thought. Sometimes God protects us in the middle of our running away because he's not done yet with us. I love that thought, that we can mess up royally and that God's call in your life, his love for you is so powerful that even though you're in the midst of the raging storm, he's not done with you. And even though the storm continues to go on, he protects you in the midst of it all. That's part of the message of the story of Jonah. It's very common for people who are running from God to experience this lack of peace. Anybody remember Michael Phelps? Olympic swimmer, finished the 2012 Olympics with more medals than anybody had ever won in the Olympics, and he got depressed. The reason he got depressed was that Phelps had built up this idea that he demanded perfection of himself. And without something left to chase, and with all the medals that he'd won, he'd realized that all of that success didn't really satisfy what was going on in the deepest part of his being, and there was nothing more for him to accomplish. And he started to get really reckless with his behavior. 
to the point where he went to a casino near Baltimore and he spent the day drinking and then he started to drive home and he got arrested. And he was in such bad shape that he ended up in rehab and he was absolutely a mess. He was at the point of destroying his life with just continually reckless behavior. Ray Lewis, who was one of the players for the Baltimore Ravens football team, knew him, got a hold of him, gave him a copy of Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. And so he walked into this drug and alcohol rehab center to stay for a month, armed with The Purpose Driven Life, and he starts texting his friend Ray saying, this book is unbelievable. This is amazing. And it began to turn his whole life around to the point where his will to succeed was renewed. He had a purpose in life. His life became centered, came back, even though he'd already retired in 2016. This time won medals, not demanding perfection out of himself, but for the joy of it all, for the joy of serving well. What's the point? Saying no to God comes at a high price, the loss of peace, the loss of purpose, and the loss of direction. But when we give our lives back to the Lord, He renews all of those things. Final observation, uh, it leads to a, a loss of purpose and direction. Verse 7 and 8, so they asked Him, tell us who is responsible for all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? It's interesting they ask that question, what kind of work do you do? Now the sailors bear in a little bit more closely with that question. Imagine the confusion in the minds of the sailors when they ask that question, what kind of work do you do? And Jonah answers them, and the conversation probably develops more than what we read here, and he says, I'm a prophet of the Lord, the Lord that I'm running away from. And they're realizing, this guy's nuts. This guy knows the God who's the creator of heaven and earth, the seas and the dry land he describes it as. He gets to represent that God, and he's running away. Wow. What chance do we have? By the end of chapter 2, Jonah has rediscovered his sense of purpose. He prays in the midst of that great fish. has to be much later that he goes back and recomposes that prayer, puts it in poetic form, and at the end of that prayer, he ends up saying to the Lord that he will fulfill his vows and that he will declare that salvation comes from the Lord. It comes off this way, what I have vowed I will make good, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And Jonah went to Nineveh to complete the mission that he was given in the first place, a second chance. The king of Assyria and the people in the capital city respond to this message. They change their ways, they listen to God, and the compassion of the Lord falls on the city of Nineveh. Some people wonder why the book of Jonah made it into the Old Testament canon of Scripture in the first place. I think there are too many, two primary reasons why. The first is that the book of Jonah reveals to us God's heart and God's concerns for even the most pagan nations that are out there. That's a go message. That's why we send people like you to South America to bring the gospel to people who may not have heard that because there's that belief that God doesn't just care about us, but he cares about people from all nations. Here's the second reason. God's dealings with Jonah address the question of what happens when we say no to direct commands and expectations from God. Now, 
it's not saying that God is going to hunt you down in the same manner that he seemed to hunt down Jonah and that he's not going to throw you into the ocean and prepare some great fish for you. But it is telling us that saying no to the call and desires of God for your life or for my life always bears a cost. We pay a high price when we run from God. So what's the answer? Run to the Lord. Open your arms to the Lord. Turn back. Saying no to God comes with, at a high price. Always a loss of peace, always a loss of purpose, always a loss of direction. But when we turn back, hope is renewed. Question. Anybody here who's been running, you don't have to identify yourself right now, but you know deep down this is one of those messages where you say, ooh, that hit me right where it hurts. Maybe there's some way that you're running. And my challenge would be stop running from, start running to. Get a friend who you can dare to open up and tell them about what you're going through and ask them to walk beside you in this next leg of the journey so you don't do it alone. Because there are seasons when we all run from God. The amazing thing is he lets us turn around. He wants us to turn around. He celebrates when we turn around. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the series that we've been in. Thank you for using this to condition our hearts in different ways to say yes when you are leading, when you are opening us up, when you are giving us the next challenge. We don't want to be people who only hear about who you are and how you work and retain that as intellectual head knowledge. We want to be people who know you and who respond when we discern what you're saying. So we pray that in the right time, in the right way, you will speak to each of us. Whether you do that through somebody else, whether you do that through a talk like this one, whether you do that as we're reading your word, whether you whisper in a way that we can audibly hear, we simply ask that you would continue to direct our lives and lead us well. In Jesus' name, amen.